Y'all, third Sunday of Advent already. Here we go. I see you over there, Joy Candle, staring me down. <laughs> Speaking of joy, y'all, um, I got to give a shout out to Eddie Burgard. Yes. Eddie and uh, his mini bands played last night uh, at Vecino, a Christmas concert for the ages. Um, the Gaelic Ales, uh, Eddie's family band, it was just absolutely amazing. And so joy to see on Eddie's face as he is up there playing and leading and their families and all of those who love them, you know, it was just joy all around the room. So, And then Eddie is here, first thing this morning, setting up, getting ready to lead us in worship today. So Eddie, thank you. Thank you for showing us joy. <laughs> He's getting a bagel. Y'all tell him I celebrated him, okay? Um, <laughs> Yo, also joy. Um, our new friend Carol out front, the name of the Carolina Snowman. Um, that was pure joy seeing that be set up this morning um, and the kids trying to put a t-shirt on the inflatable snowman. They had joy trying to do it. I had joy watching them trying to do it. Um, but y'all, this third Sunday of Advent, it means it's probably time for me to start doing some Christmas shopping um, you know, I don't want to be in a rush, and I don't want to be in, in a hurry about it, and so um, I don't shop on Amazon, as many of you know. Um, I am one of those people that actually likes to go into a store and, and pick things out. I, weird, I know, but y'all, um, this is one of my favorite times. It's actually the, the couple of weeks before Christmas when it starts to like be a a buzz to like get in the stores and actually find those local items. So if you have a chance, shop local, shop small. I know many of you already clicked and ordered, and I'm sure you're using smile.amazon.com to benefit Love Chapel Hill in those purchases. So thank you for doing that. Um, but if you haven't purchased all of your items online yet, take, take a minute and just go visit one local store and see what you can find. Um, I will see you out there, okay? But in the season of Advent, we are in this place of the already and not yet of the coming of the King. Right? We remember and we celebrate Jesus' first coming in this season. We celebrate the foundations that he laid out for us and for his coming for the works of salvation and redemption of our lives. And at the same time, we eagerly anticipate the return of our King, coming in full glory and the restoration of all things. Today, we are going to dive into Matthew chapter 1, where the first 17 verses are going to lay out for us the whole road that gets us from Abraham to Jesus coming. And so if you want to turn over there, you can do that um, in your Bible or on your phone. It will also be on the screen. But y'all, let's pray together as we get ready to dive into God's word. Lord, this is your word to us. And this is the revelation of your work throughout history in the world to bring about our rescue in our redemption. And so may they be more than words on a page or on a screen for us today. May they be the revelation, God, of your work, not just through history to get us to Jesus, but here and now, God, to get to us and to get to those around us who need to hear the good news. So speak to us today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Y'all buckle up. All right, here we go. Because this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, 
Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminabad. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. Jerome, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Y'all still with me? Okay, all right. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I have never been so grateful to see the names Mary and Joseph in my life. Okay, we made it. <laughs> Y'all reading this, right? It's like someone forgot to tell Matthew how to open the most epic transformational book in the world. Um, this is an introduction that most of us are like, oh. an honest confession. Who has ever been like, okay, I'm going to read the New Testament, the whole thing this year. And you read chapter one, and you're like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> it's, it's okay, right? And I mean, some of you may have been just like, I'm going to skip that part. And that's okay, too. There's no judgment. In fact, me too. Like, I come to that, and I'm like, okay, was, do I have to read the whole thing again? <laughs> yes, yes. It's okay to skip it sometimes, though. So some... <laughs> Some of the, the multiple chapters of the Old Testament, we feel the same way, right? They're names upon names. And th that's where these names are coming from in the first place, right? Oh my goodness, the book of Chronicles. Yo, the first nine chapters of Chronicles goes on like that and on and on and on. I'm like, please, not another genealogy. So at this point, I will take a moment to suggest, if you don't yet use an audio Bible, it is such a gift. It is such a gift. And it connects us actually to history. Because really, I mean, until 500-ish years ago, there were not printing presses happening, and we didn't really have them to just carry around in our pockets. It was oral, right? We would hear the word. And so when you get to use a, a Bible app and listen to it, Yo, it is connecting us through the ages to the people who have heard the word of God. So take that opportunity, especially when you're listening to such genealogies as this. But to the original hearer of the word, right, to put ourselves in the context of those reading Matthew in the early days, or even hearing it, right, because it was an orally shared word, this these first 17 verses are pure gold. It is a beautiful expression. Many, many of us, like today, would, would, have, would experience this the way that they did in the ways that we can name, um, I don't know, like playing the, the game Six Degrees of Separation of Kevin Bacon, right? Um, or Three Degrees of Separation from Matt Leroy. Um, you, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> 
Or the way that we know sports teams and their players through the ages and the connections to each other, right? So the, the thought of how we can remember those names and they spark for us, oh, that player played on that team um, that year. This is not my gift, okay? Y'all, I can tell you though, right? I know the Carolina basketball dynasty, right? Like that, that builds even going back from Hubert Davis, right? to Roy Williams, to Dean Smith, who played for Fog Allen, who played for the inventor of basketball. Okay, like it's, it's real. I was up all night preparing for that. Remind me to tell you about the time Matt and Chris and I tried to have a band meeting at Sutton's and um, the, the person who works there who's known as coach, um, there was nothing but basketball talk that day. And so it was like, okay, y'all just go ahead. I'm going to catch up on some email. Uh, because that, yes, it did not turn into a band meeting that day. Um, but it was a ton of fun, as always. Or maybe this is like the way that we remember Lord of the Rings characters. And now we're trying to make those connections from Rings of Power. Like who is who and all the names that just come flooding to us. Right? These names would have been recognizable by everybody who heard this. It was the story unfolding that got them to where they were in that moment. And so Matthew's unfolding of this, he has really two key intents. And so let's talk about those for just a moment. The span of time we're talking about, right, from over here with the start of it at Abraham to Jesus, we're spanning roughly, give or take, 2,000 years, okay? So the, the span of time from Abraham to Jesus. All of these hard-to-pronounce names, they bring the reader into this story. And even for many of us, the first section in particular, right, it starts with names that we can be like, oh, I know that guy, right? Like, I know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then on down, oh, Jesse, I've heard of him. David, Solomon, okay, these are names that I know. And finally, Mary and Joseph. (laughs) But the lesser known names to us, they all have stories that are known by God and known by the original hearers of this word. Right, it reveals also some very unexpected twists and turns in the path of God's blessing to and through the people of Israel for the sake of the world. Matthew is intentionally showing us that Jesus, our King, who has come and will come again, is in the line of King David. He's tracing the legal or the royal lineage all the way through the descendants of David, even when it seems like his line would end. We talked about last week, In reviewing Psalm 2, right, it felt like there was this time when David's line ended. But Matthew is able to pick it up and trace it all the way through the Babylonian exile down to Mary and Joseph, thus establishing that Jesus is in the kingly line of David. And then the last verse for us, verse 17 To us, it's a hidden gem. Like, if you go digging and want to get into that, it's it's amazing. But for the original readers, this is like a flashing neon sign, right? Like, this is like, hey, look, right here, I'm telling you, this is who this is. It says, thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile to Babylon, and from the exile to the Messiah. 14. Y'all, it's a multiple of seven. Seven, right? And so when the Hebrew reader comes to the word 14, it's most likely they see it like this, right? Two times seven. And that doesn't just happen once. It happens three times. So Matthew was like, hey, right here, people, look, this This is what we've been waiting for. And I'm no math major. Believe me, my kids in fifth and sixth grade are teaching me math right now. Um, Or I'm really struggling to remember. Thank you, Google, for all of your help. Um, But that makes all six, right, of these sets of seven, 42, multiple or divisible by seven. 
And so seven is a symbol, right? Seven is a symbol of fullness or completion in all of the ancient Near East, especially Israel's culture. In fact, the spelling of seven in Hebrew is actually the same consonants as the word complete. So Matthew is conveying that Jesus is the completion and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, to God's promise to David, of his descendants being enthroned forever, and then to the people of Israel, that Jesus is that anticipated, expected king. And it's double time, two times seven. It's even better, right? It's even more than we expected. Matthew is telling us, the reader, that the king who has come is even better than we dreamed. The completion, the fullness of this. Right? He's also revealing that the coming of the king was intentional into a specific time and place and race, even within a very specific lineage and family. So we've talked about two things Matthew is doing intentionally here. Let's talk about one thing Matthew is not intending to do. Matthew is not intending to give an exact person-by-person, generation-by-generation account from Abraham to Jesus. There are, like we said, 42 names in the generations here from Abraham to Jesus. In studying this, we know for sure that in the middle 14, that list of kings, he's leaving out the names of three kings. Like, it's just blatantly, like, left out. And so he's leaving out those three kings, not because they weren't noteworthy kings, though they probably might be rather forgotten because they may well have been terrible kings, but he did this because he's using the literary device and structure to communicate the sense of completion. Genealogical lists can sometimes be the texts that bring, bring the Bible and its stories under heavy criticism. This is particular in the case when differences are found within the genealogies, in the lists that are made. And so like this one and the genealogy of Jesus listed in Luke chapter 3, the differences in Matthew and Luke in the genealogies that they list, there's often a criticism used to try and discredit the Bible or the story of Jesus altogether. The two lists are quite different, though there are many similarities too. Luke actually takes on his account in reverse. He is actually working his way back from Jesus to King David and then to Abraham and then on back to Adam. Luke includes 42 names alone just in Jesus to King David. So where Matthew only has 27 spanning that time. So is one right and one's wrong? Does it make the Bible less true or less trustworthy? Why wouldn't someone along the way in this 2,000 years or so of history and the Bible coming to us today, why would they not have aligned them? Why would they not synchronize these lists so that there are no discrepancies? The fact that there are differences in perspective and the ways of telling the story brings about an even sharper authenticity it shows us that there was no attempt here to cover up a scandal, right? They are not trying to make it all look perfect. The authors are actually speaking to different audiences. Matthew himself, a Jewish tax collector for Rome, that's a whole other thing we'll get into. But Matthew is trying to reach a predominantly Jewish audience. And Luke is speaking to a Gentile audience. And so their intents are different. What they are trying to reveal in the genealogy of Jesus is different. There are three key explanations for the differences that Bible scholars have, have come to in this. Quickly, they are, one, Luke is potentially laying out Mary's lineage, also in David's line, instead of laying out Joseph's. Two, one of the genealogies is illegal or royal in nature, and the other is actually physical or biological in attempting that. 
The third is the theory that perhaps Joseph had two fathers, that perhaps his biological father died somewhere along the way, and either his mother remarried or to combine two theories, Mary's family may have actually taken Joseph in as if he were Joseph's own father, regardless of the possible explanation here. It doesn't appear to be a big deal to the authors. The original readers of this word that the authors were trying to reach, it's so blatant a difference. And as I understand from several scholarly perspectives, this literary device would have been so common that Matthew's readers would have understood exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. So if you want to dig deeper on this, if that piques your curiosity and you're like, okay, let's see what's going on here. Uh, I dropped a few teaching resources for you on the Sunday page. So you can scroll on down there from time to time. You know we do that. There are um, a few different scholarly articles there if you want to take a look into the possible theories of why these differences. So take a look. Check that out. The lineage then has some very unexpected items in it that Matthew presents to us. Particularly that there are four women. Not one, not two, three. It is four women. And this alone would have got people talking. right? That there are women listed in the genealogy of a king. The coming of a king. Not only would it have been uncommon for women to be found in genealogy here, but these four women in particular, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they were outsiders. Y'all, at least two of the four, but likely all four of them, were not born into the family of Israel. They are foreigners who either had, um, had married into the family or um, had, had been exposed and in the community with the people of Israel. And so first, Tamar, we find in Genesis 38 that she's a Canaanite woman whose first husband is found to be evil and dies. Her second husband, the first's brother, is also found to be evil and dies. When it is then Judah, her father-in-law's responsibility, Judah was in that list too, right? When it's his responsibility to make sure that she has heirs, he sends her back to live with her father. And Tamar, knowingly, and doing what was right, actually deceives Judah by dressing as a prostitute at the city gate and waits for Judah to solicit her so that she can become pregnant and then conceive and produce two sons, which then saves the line of Judah through which King David comes. Y'all, tell me the Old Testament is boring, right? Like, we've got a storyline here and a movie in the making. Onward, Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Again, we have a Canaanite, actually a prostitute this time, but one who plays a critical role to harbor two of Joshua's spies on a covert mission to see Jericho from the inside before they try to go to battle and take the city so that they could go into the promised land. In exchange for her courage and great faith, making it possible for Joshua's men to sneak in and out unharmed and leading to their success in battle, Rahab, this Canaanite woman, and her family are saved, and they lived among the Israelites for the rest of their days. Jewish tradition actually holds that Rahab becomes a wife of Joshua. On to Ruth. Ruth gets her own book in the Bible, telling her story as a Moabite widow who shows great loyalty to her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. Through her faithfulness and God's favor, these two women are saved by Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who then gives Ruth a child named Obed that makes her then the great-grandmother of King David. And Bathsheba, oh Bathsheba, she doesn't get named here, 
though we know quite well who she is, by the shade that is thrown over King David as the murderer of her first husband, reminding us of the way that King's, King David's line would continue through Bathsheba and David's son Solomon. Through all of these four women, there is deep brokenness of death and loss, loss of identity due to widowhood, the acts of prostitution, adultery, and murder. They are all a part of the unfolding of this foundation that gets us from Abraham to Jesus. And there are many names that we don't know. Though they would have been known to the original readers, to us, we have to dig deep to find them. We don't know them and we don't expect that they are essential to the story too. And it is intentional that God is working in and through them. This list is not trying to be a clean, shining example of an untainted, perfect lineage. I imagine if the Pharisees were to write this, right, it would have been very prim and proper, that it would have been buttoned up to a T with all the polish they could find. But instead, this is a meandering, roller coaster like lineage with unexpected twists and turns through darkness and light. But in all of it, God revealing his plan of redemption and rescue for the world. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. That it is something that I can be a part of because I'm not perfect and my story isn't either. That this un imperfect story that is in process God revealing himself and working in and through his people. It invites us to be a part of it. It gives me comfort that I don't have to have it all figured out. It gives me hope that I don't have to look or act a certain way before I can be a part of what God is up to in the world. And Jesus' ministry would continue this way. Right? The outsiders become insiders. Many of you know that's why radical hospitality, reckless love, and optimistic grace are just a few of the marks of us as a church family here at Love Chapel Hill. In Jesus' ministry, we see the outsiders, the isolated, the oppressed, the forgotten, that they are the first thought of this king. And so it is with us. We let this ideal that is unfolding and in process that is not yet complete, but we anticipate the return of the king as we are about this work in the world. Jesus' lineage flings wide the door for us to be found in the family of God. And so we've seen the unfolding of this line that leads to Jesus. Having unfolded over 2,000 years, what about the line that leads to you? It's unfolding now, and it's paving the road for the king's return. Friends, who we are has been shaped by where we come from. Who we are has been shaped by where we come from. Biblically and scientifically, we can see that our family of origin has the greatest influence on who we are. Not just our immediate family, our father, mother, sisters, or brothers, but to the third and fourth generations. Right? Our individualistic society, however, genealogy is not often valued. We don't often put the time in to seek out where we have come from. What has brought us to this place? 
The idea that we can be a self-made person or pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps just isn't how the world worked for the last, well, however old you think it is. (laughs) We are because there are people who came before us. We were made for life together in community, in family, right? So has anyone ever used 23andMe or Ancestry.com? You don't have, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. Like you can, <laughs> you, can, you can say that safely and comfortably in this place, right? We have these services now that work off of our DNA or online profiles that they can build, be building blocks for us. Right, but even that in our world today can be such a passive thing that we can stand in anonymity or without a conversation with family or community to discover who we are, where we have come from. You know, it can be difficult to dig into our past. And as someone who has put it off <laughs> for a long time, I don't take that lightly. It can be painful. It can be disruptive to work through the things of the past. But there are also a lot of good reasons to do some exploring. Right? We can have a better understanding of our genetics and our environmental factors that impact our physical health, our mental health, how we process things, or even our emotional health. And even spiritually, understanding where our beliefs come from, the influences on our lives for better or worse, how they've been shaping who we are through our family of origin. Jesus wants us to thrive in freedom. Amen? He wants us to thrive in freedom of relationship with him. Remember, his call to each of us is simply, come and follow me. His desire for us is thriving, and that is being healthy in body, in mind, and spirit. Body, mind, and spirit, all surrendered to his will and purpose for our lives. And exploring our family of origin allows us to unfold and explore the blessings, and the difficulties over the past three to four generations. You know, one of the pastors that I often look to and who is speaking into my life often, though he doesn't know it and he wouldn't know me, um, is a guy by the name of John Mark Comer. He's doing ministry out in Portland, Oregon. He's now leading a ministry called Practicing the Way. So together in his faith community, he's developed a way of exploring our family of origin as a foundational practice for following Jesus. He says that through that searching and exploring our own family, the thought of that can actually elicit three types of responses that are common, right? One, as we think about exploring the past, some may say, isn't it the past? Shouldn't we just let it all go? that I've been saved by Jesus, and shouldn't I look ahead and forget the past? Another way is, sure, we can explore my past, right? But I come from a long line of awesome. (laughs) Let's go. Let's explore this. My family is amazing. I already know it. And the third is actually just quite the opposite of that, right? That my family is full of train wrecks, It's a can of worms that I'm just not willing to open right now. No way that I'm going there. So the intent of exploring our family of origin is not to dwell in it and not to point fingers or play the blame game, but to learn from it. Right, the famous quote from philosopher George Santanea, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yes. I'm not sure which of these responses you might have as you think about exploring your family of origin. But wherever you are, 
this is my response to you. This is a safe place. This is a safe place of community and of faith that will walk with you. And we want to help you in becoming the healthy version of you. Body, mind, and spirit. We do it in community, as a family. And so if your response is response one, you know, that's often been the attitude and the approach of the church. Not dealing with it. Sweeping it under the rug. The thing is that dealing, not dealing with the past doesn't make it go away. I know, because I've tried, and it didn't go well. It's not emotionally healthy. We need to be emotionally healthy. If response two is yours, that's wonderful. (laughs) That your family is amazing. We're also knowing that you're human. Which means it ain't perfect. (laughs) And even if it is nearly so, there is space, right? There is space to learn and grow and maybe even have more gratitude for it. And maybe if response three is yours, just hear that it's okay. And maybe you're not ready to dig in and do that exploring just yet, and that's all right. Friends, dwelling in the past can lead to feelings of disqualification, of guilt and shame, and believing the lies of the enemy. Our intent is not to dwell there. If you have ever felt like you are somehow disqualified from serving in God's kingdom, go back and read Jesus' genealogy and know that it is a lie of the enemy. I actually have in my notes, it's BS. Um, <laughs> we've got to keep the youth rating on YouTube, so I'm going to... Um, but learning from the past, y'all, instead of dwelling in it, learning from the past leads us to freedom. It n- we were never promised an easy road, only that we wouldn't walk the road alone that he would never leave us nor forsake us. There are so many testaments in this room to how not easy it is, how extremely difficult it is. Learning from your, our, sorry, (laughs) learning from our origin story, our past, leads to a life of freedom and health as we follow and practice the ways of Jesus. Friends, I want to encourage you to do that in your community. Whether that's in small groups or your discipleship band, with a group of close friends, with a therapist. Y'all, I waited way too long in my life to see a therapist. If you need a list of good therapists in the area, we are happy to help with that. It is helpful to have tools to process. Whether that is with friends or with a professional, you know, there are tools that you can use to get into this. Whether it's as simple as just filling in a family tree, right? Or working through an even more detailed version of a family tree called a genogram. Anybody ever heard or used a genogram? Right on, right? It is an extremely useful tool to explore your family of origin. You can even explore your Enneagram type that helps reveal the underlying motivations that are shaped and formed by your developmental experiences. You know, my grandma Barbara, she was a semi-professional genealogist and she did a ton of work exploring our family tree, piecing it together and helping other people piece their family trees together. 
She was an accountant by trade, and as I'm thinking about now, actually, Matthew as a tax collector and him telling the genealogy, now thinking of my grandma as an accountant and the genealogy thing, there must be some connection there. Um, but y'all, I remember from an early age getting to walk with her through fields to go find, find old family cemeteries that we could actually go and see, like find the dates of births and deaths for people that she had heard of that have connection within our family. I also remember from an early age just actually how honest you have to be to be in genealogy. Right? There's, there's only so much that we can sweep under the rug or try to hide while we are living. Y'all, once we're dead, it's like, it's kind of out there. <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> but to, to look at family trees and be like, where's that branch going? I'm from West Virginia. I've heard all the family tree jokes. If you've got it, you think you have a new one, you can try it on me later. But there are plenty of branches. Actually, let me show you this fan chart. Um, I think we have a picture, maybe. Thank you, Brooke. You rock. Y'all, so this, you can't read it, obviously, but this is a fan chart, actually, from my grandma Barbara, who is in the middle, and it works out from there. The fan chart goes out to the 10th generation. There are two branches on that that actually go out to the 10th generation in the work that she did to discover our family lineage. I don't know what it says that the glass is broken on our family tree, but <laughs> the picture that my mom grabbed of that for me, um, the glass is actually broken. So that actually is probably pretty indicative of much in our family. But the honesty that has to come, right? If we are actually to trace and track our lineage, we have to be honest about relationships and experiences, how we are related and connected. One of the things that I still love, and I remember my grandma Barbara anytime I do this, is actually walking in cemeteries. There's something just transformational about taking a walk through a cemetery. My daughter Riley is cringing right now. She can't even look at a cemetery when we drive by them. Um, but I like to walk in them. And so on a recent trip uh, with Joel and Matt and Matt's dad to a conference in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I actually got up a couple of mornings at sunrise, before sunrise, and walked through this cemetery. It's a huge town cemetery there in Murfreesboro. And just walking through that space, you can feel the sacredness of the ground and knowing also the age of this cemetery. I knew that there had to be a portion of this cemetery that was likely segregated. And so I went to find it in the back corner. And as the sun is coming up and the fog is lifting in this space to find the marker there of actually even all of the unknown graves of the slaves in that community. And my heart just broke. Looking around at all of the headstones, right, they have their have the dates and the names, and all of them have stories, right? And it's easier to isolate their stories because we know when they lived and what they might have experienced in that place. But then there's this whole section that we don't know. And you know, in walking in that place, I could sense the Lord just saying to me, I know their story. I know their stories, just like I know your story. I know where every one of them is. And I walked with them every day of their life, just like I'm walking with you. That sometimes 
we need to know that God knows our story. And in that, he loves us more than we can ever imagine. In this season and in service of finding hope and peace and joy, we can come up to any genealogy in Scripture. We can recognize that it is an unfolding of God's story through people over the ages. But we can also know that our story, that our genealogy is a part of that story unfolding as well. Because if you remember, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, right, there were six sets of seven that led up to Jesus. What if right here and right now, you and me, we are the seventh set to make full and complete the lineage, the generations established for the returning of our King. Because he knows your story. And he invites you into his. You know, the joy of today in lighting this candle is much more than happiness. It's not based on your current feeling or situation but it's a joy that flows out of hope and peace in the midst of sorrow and difficulty. What are the circumstances that might be trying to steal your joy? The circumstances from your past that make you maybe not even want to go there. The fullness of joy comes in the knowing and trusting Jesus with our whole lives, our past, our present, and our future. The realization that you are the pinnacle of his creation, the crown jewel of Almighty God, and that you are a part of this path and foundation for unfolding his return as the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, a few action items for you to consider as we turn our eyes to the table, to the bread and the cup. Consider this week just going and reading any story of the names mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Just take a minute, pick one. It'll probably make you feel better about your situation, your life. <laughs> Second thing is consider taking time to chart out your family tree or even exploring the genogram. Explore it to the third and the fourth generation that leads to you. Consider even starting some conversations as you're with family this holiday season. Maybe you're ready to even ask some tough questions. But to help open the door to understand and discover the things that have impacted your life, those things that are seen and unseen, whether you're aware or unaware. Third thing is maybe it's time for a walk through a cemetery. Or maybe it's just time for a walk at all. You need to take time out of your day and just get some fresh air. But to go and reflect on the stories of those who have gone before us. And finally, maybe it's time to consider letting go of trying to maintain an ideal image and know that you are the pride and the joy of your creator. You are the pride and joy of your creator. He knows you need a rescuer. It's not news to him. 
Nothing is hidden from him. And so he sent his son, Jesus, for the rescue and the redemption of your past, no matter what it might hold. And so it is as we receive his body and his blood. That we remember those who have gone before us and all of them too in need of rescue and redemption. But coming down to us that Jesus saw us and knew of our need before we could even cry out for help. That he put his body upon the cross and his blood was poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sin. That you might have the fullness of freedom of life with him. Friends, we're going to invite you to come down this side and come across the front. Doug and Beth are ready to serve you here. There's a gluten-free option if you need it. You know, if any of this has sparked something in you, that there is a question that comes for you, how do you get to be a part of God's story? How do you get to be ready for the return of the king? Y'all, I'm going to be down here on this side, and I'd love to pray with you or just talk with you if you have questions. We invite each and every one of you to come to the table, encounter the king who has come and will come again.